Start out, where do wars and fights come from among you? Remember James 4. We talked about that. It was, it was uh, you know, the strife, the discourse. We started talking about there are so many unhappy homes. We're talking about Christian homes here, folks. Not We know that the world's in desiree, that divorce rate is, is through the roof. But among Christians, there are so many unhappy homes, so many frustrated Christians, so many complacent marriages and fighting that goes on inside and, and without. The strife, the discord, the feuds, the quarrelings, the fightings. Wars and fights are in direct contrast with peace. And we saw that, that in the 18th verse of the third chapter. It says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? We talked about that. The lust, verse 2, we talked about how Noah described lust. And this was this was Noah Webster, a very godly man. It's been obscured, some of these words, as time has gone on. But lust is basically, simply put, a bodily appetite. Of course, especially, and now, especially nowadays, it comes out in the meeting, it was, is excessive sexual desire. But it's an overmastering desire. I could lust for something that doesn't belong to me and have such an overpowering desire and let that overtake me that I will do harm to my neighbor to get that. I will do harm to my spouse to get that and so forth. Or my Christian, uh, my Christian witness. And it all boils down to lust as if it's to feel an intense desire for something. We went over, uh, remember Naboth's vineyard, how Abel excuse me, Ahab, the king, Ahab, wicked king of Israel, coveted that vineyard. Remember that story? 1 Kings 21? Classic example of he had vineyards. He was the king, but yet he wanted that vineyard. And see, that's an intense desire. And people say, well, that's not me. That's not me. Well, people that say that's not me is like the same people that read Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and, a, and a wicked beyond any other. Oh, that's not my heart. That's not me. That's going to be somebody else. No, it's your heart. It's my heart. Covetousness creeps in every area of life. Practical? Listen, without Jesus Christ, you cannot divert covetousness. That, that's just the way it is. Whether it's, whether it's for predominance, whether it's for money, whether it's for the position in your company, whether it's the desire to have your own company so you can be the boss, whatever it is, that will overtake you eventually. And then it will leave you empty. It will leave you empty at the end of your life. Charles Swindoll calls it the wine of the lonely top dog. I love it. A guy who fights and, and lusts and covets and, and thinks he's getting everything that, his, that he needs. He thinks he's satisfying all the desires in life. And yet he realizes once he gets everything, it leaves him empty and destitute. It's beyond the grasp. We are spiritual beings made for spiritual realities. That's why in the book of Ephesians, right before it talks about our exalted position, it says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where our feeding is. That's, that's that satisfaction with, with now. It, it is within our grasp because it's Christ. So these are practical things that James... Uh, one of the earliest writings of the New Testament is talking about here. Remember we talked about friendship with the world, verse 4. You know, if you read this, this is serious business. I want to get in, uh, starting verse 5, 6, and 7 today, and we'll go rapidly through this. But this is, uh, God is serious with the relationship with you. He's way more serious about a relationship with you than you are with him. And you can tell a person that has been a follower of Jesus Christ because more and more and more he realizes the seriousness of that relationship. He realizes the, the desire that God has for his life and he, he aligns his will, he delights his, his purposes and power to that. And I only say power because power given him by the Holy Spirit to live that way. He now says, I don't fight against the tide anymore. I'm not trying to paddle up my own stream. Now 
it, I am aligned with God and it's producing fruit in my life. Listen really closely. Let's read the first five verses. Just read them and listen to the intense desire he's writing. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do not they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasure. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think, verse 5, that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Jealously yearns. God desires that you would follow him. He is dealing with you on an altogether different plane. This world is full of death and sin, destruction, misery, and all who plant their purpose on this will follow that path. And God said, I have called you out from death into life. I have raised you up with me in heavenly places. Your, your position is different now. Our citizenship or our conversation is in heaven. And that produces something. Wow. Jealous means that the Spirit is watchful and guarding over your soul. Exodus 34 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He yearns for us. He yearns to complete in us what Christ did on the cross, and that was to take your sin and cause you to become a new creation in Him. You are now His possession, and now God is free, if you will, because His justice has been met. He is free now to deal with you as His possession. And that possession He guards earnestly, jealously, Think about that. Some of God loves you and me. We fight and we war because we want to keep that which is not ours. We want to keep and we want to follow. We want to find some form of satisfaction where God says, I'm not in that. This is where I'm at. I am life. I'm the giver of life, I'm the sustainer of life, and I am eternal life. You know, this is a great concept. We are going to live forever. You know, you're an eternal being. Think about that. We are eternal beings. This is nothing. What if your eyes were taken from you today? Would that change your life? I mean, I'd be able to see anything, but that, would that change the life of God? Absolutely not. What if you die today and your body is rotting on the ground? Does that change the life of God? Absolutely not. You are going to be with Him forever. And yet we so much want to fulfill our ambitions, our desires, our this and our that. But God, who dwells within us, yearns for us jealously. He's a jealous God. That's his name. And in the same in the same Old Testament book, Deuteronomy 4, which is quoted also by the writer of the Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, nonetheless says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. So your Lord your God is not only a jealous God, he loves you. What are you doing not following uh, him and laying your life down for him and giving your life to him but he is also a consuming fire. Wow. God, I believe, is very pleased with a prayer that goes something like this. God, consume me. I want to be the stubble that is consumed 
and your everlasting love and life. Take my life, for I am yours. I've been bought with a price. It must be a little bit more serious than my five senses can can handle. You know? Jesus Christ died so that I might live. Jesus Christ died so that I might be God's possession, not separated from him before as because of sin, but now vitally united to him because Christ, who took my sin, buried it far away and raised from the dead that I might have life. James equates doing our own thing as being adulterer and adulteress. I'll read that quote that I, I thought it was great from the Amplified Version last week. I know some of you were. It's, it's pointed. Amplified is a great tool, says about verse 4, you are like unfaithful wives, remember? You are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Well, I wouldn't break my marriage vow to my wife. I love my wife. I'm a faithful wife. Really? Or I'm a faithful husband. But you're breaking it with, you know, you can do that with somebody you can't see, but yet with God, we tend to sometimes get wrapped up in things. And for you that have made your commitment to God, and there's no turning back, praise the Lord. Wow. And I know who you are. That's the job of a shepherd. I can't look into hearts. But you do see the fruit of it. I think now is the time for those that are either listening or listening here. If you have not resolved to give everything to God and leave all the results to Him, now is the time. Now is the time to do it. Look at these scriptures. Look at verse... uh, (laughs) We talked... Oh, and by the way, we talked about the world. What is the world? I quoted that quote from Schofield. And I want to just do it again. And then we'll be moving rapidly. But the world. You know, people get so caught up and, and, and it's easy. What is the world? You know, we live in this world. But Jesus said a point thing that helps us understand it. We live in this world, but we're not of the world. And he said to his father, John 17, that they are no more of the world, even as I am not of the world. He doesn't pray to take us out, but that we would be left in the world to bear witness. This is, again, uh, one of the greatest statements that I've ever heard about the world. What is it? What is, the world is not what you can see, what you can feel, you touch. The world is, is a, a, an atmosphere. It's, it's an agenda. Schofield wrote this, and by the way, he wrote this in 1909. How much more would he probably add to this if you were alive today? He described what the world is. He says, in the sense of this present world system, the ethically bad sense of the word, and I'm just repeating this in case you might not have got it the last time. In the bad sense of the word, world, it refers to the order or arrangement under which Satan has organized the world of unbelieving mankind upon his cosmic principles of force, greed, selfishness, ambition, and pleasure. This world system is imposing and powerful with military might. It's often outwardly religious, scientific, it's even cultured and elegant, but seething with national and commercial rivalries and ambitions, and is upheld in any real crisis only by armed force and and is dominated by satanic principles. That's the world in which we live. He who makes a a practice of being a friend of the world is really making himself an enemy of God. By the way, when Satan fell, you know what that declared? War. 
when Satan fell in sin through pride and arrogance, we can read about that a little bit in Isaiah 14 and elsewhere, that started an enmity, a battle, a war, if you will. When Jesus Christ died and rose again, and I put my trust in him, my war, my enmity is over. God has made peace, and I have received that peace. When you understand the principles of this world and what sin has done, and you realize that Christ came and took the sin of you and I upon himself, and enabling peace to be made between you and God, you start to understand how God yearns jealously within you. He wants you, every part of you, not fickleness. Oh man, how many of us have been in situations where we've been fickle our whole heart about something and you just get tired of it? You say, I'm tired of going back and forth. Aren't you tired about being in the middle of the road in your Christian life? Aren't you tired about knowing that there's that you need to just, just leave it all with God and commit your life to Him? And yet something is holding you back. I quoted earlier uh, about what Satan's desire is to do. His desire is to hit you with your pride. And say, why? Well, you know, hey, you're only human. You're here for a short time. You know? You need to seek pleasure. You need to seek fulfillment. You need to seek everything you can. It's like that old Adam. This is a devilish uh, bumper sticker. He who has the most toys at the end of his life wins. And I'm sure some of you have seen it. I've seen it. That is false, obviously. But that's the premiation of the world. And Satan appeals to your pride and he says, Hey, you don't, don't, you know, don't spend your whole life in that narrow, constricting way and being miserable and, and all that. See, the world will say, God... God's way will make you miserable. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. I lived with, with a dad that said, you know, basically, no. We grew up, my sister and I made a pact. If we had something to do, and if my mom said, go ask your father, we wouldn't go, because he always said no. But now that I'm a man, now that I've had kids, now that they're grown, now that I'm a little bit older, I praise the Lord, he said No. And some of us need to realize God says no for a reason, for our good, for our ultimately ultimate fulfillment. Our God is a wonderful God. If we knew what Jesus meant when he was the door and anybody entered him, we're saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. That's freedom. He's the Lord of liberty. The liberty to walk and do what is right. The liberty not to be bitten by sin, not to be controlled by sin. And plus, sin has ugly wages. Oh, you're working for somebody. The bum out on the street that has nowhere to go is working for somebody. You're either working for Jesus Christ or sin. And sin pays an awful wage. It's called death. There's no liberty in death. There's no happiness in death. There's decay in death. There's poison in death. But if you work for Jesus Christ, His wages is eternal life. He gives you liberty not to walk in the things that would pull you down. Wow. He's a jealous God. I want to, I want to, to go on real quickly. Verse 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see what, what the writer is trying to tell us here? Pride will ruin you. Webster defines humble as having having or showing awareness of one's defects, modest, lowly, unpretentious. He has nothing, he has no angle or anything to, to gain from. All of his exaltation, if you will, all of his his uprising, updrafts of joyous if you will, come from the Lord. He has nothing else but God. To being humble is, is to lower oneself voluntarily and condition to rank. And to make humble in one's mind, Jesus said, wherever you go into a gathering, don't go up to highest seats. You know? 
Because what if one comes in and says, hey, brother, that was reserved for somebody else. You need to go down to another place and, and you'd be shamed. Go in and pick the, the lowest spots. So when the, when the master of the house comes in and says, hey, why don't you come up here and sit up here with me? The humble will always be exalted by God. The pride will always be abased. And we looked at, at uh, one of the huge reasons uh, for this end of the age and this judging of the nations and Armageddon is going to come about. We told you about, I read a passage, and this is very telling about what God thinks about pride. He says, for the day of the Lord, this is Isaiah 2.12, you're taking notes, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything that is proud and lofty and lifted up, and he shall bring everything low. God is resistant to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I am nothing. You are nothing. One of the greatest things that I believe that King David ever says is, I am poor and needy. Are you kidding me? When he sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan came in, gave him that parable, and basically said, God says, I've given you everything. I've given you carte blanche. But David was speaking in himself. I am poor and I am needy. Where do wars and fights come from? <laughs> they come from within you. Pride and, and, and arrogancy. You lust. You have. You know, you look at verse 2 again, and that is such a pointed discussion. You lust and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, <coughs> so you fight at war. That's why. And then, hey, if you ask God, why doesn't God give me these things? He doesn't give you them if you ask amiss. If anybody asks according to the will of God, he hears them and he has of what he asks. That's the key. And the will of God is always to develop you uh, into the, the, uh, the image of Christ, to uh, produce character within you. Does envy produce character? Does lust produce character? To spinning everything on your pleasure so you get what you want, does that produce character? No. What produces character is humility, lowliness of mind, and saying, Lord, you created me. You know me better than yourself, myself. Feed me with the food that is convenient for me. Whatever you desire for my life, that is what my life should have. That's humility. You'd be amazed. I have never, ever talked to somebody who's made that commitment that ever says, you know, I blew it. Wow. You know, I, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't make that commitment because, boy, was my life restrained. And I just, no, I never have. And I have spent my time with godly men in the past. I have godly men now that I still talk to once in a while. One of the first things that we do when we get into a new town, and Dean and I did it, we go and we talk to the pastors. We see what they're doing. We want to get associated. And boy, I'll tell you, we've got a rude awakening for a few of them here in this town, you know, in this area when we came here. Godly men never regret making that commitment, ever. They are full of joy because their God treats them with carte blanche. They're, they're a child of the king. But the way to get into the presence of God and to enjoy Him day by day forever is humility. Humility. Now I want to talk about this verse in verse 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. You know, we all know in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 4 and elsewhere, Jesus was, was being tempted. And we all know that he submitted himself to his Father. He's a son of man. He's the greatest example. And he submitted himself to his Father. And he used his Father's words, and the devil left him. But there's an interesting point. He left him at a you know, and, and was waiting for an opportune time. You know, we can have a victory today. And don't savor on that 
for the victory tomorrow. We day by day momentarily feed on Christ. We can't feed on portions of Christ last week and expect it to sustain us this week. See how far you go in that. There's a spiritual principle in the wilderness, for example, we've talked about. When the Israelites were told, you need to gather every day this manna that falls. Don't let it go the other day because if you do, it's going to stink and breed worms. The only time he told you to, to gather a double portion is for the Sabbath. So they go out and they gather enough that they need for that day. It's an appropriation law that's all through the Bible. We see it in the book of Joshua and elsewhere. But if you, if you think that you can have an, a great experience and wax off and feed on it a couple days later, it's going to stink and breed worms because Christ is a living Christ. We feed on him daily. That's part of submission to God. We appropriate Christ daily, all the time. We don't, well, I read three or four chapters of his word. I really got into it you know, yesterday. Today, well, I just don't have time. Um, that's a pretty shaky ground if you're looking forward to nourishment two or three days ago to sustain you today. Because we're to constantly feed on Christ. John 6.57, if you want to go there, uh, is, is an illustration of that. In fact, let's, let's go there real quick. Just hold your finger there. Um, let's go there real quick. John chapter 6, I believe it's verse 57. Yes, it is. And the context of this, of this verse is, is, you know, 56, 55, 54, those previous verses... Actually, 53, Jesus is saying, Assuredly, you drink my, my, my blood, you eat my flesh, assuredly this is going to be life. But look at, look at 657. Uh, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And then he directly equates that with the manna that fell down in the wilderness. The whole word of God taken together is, is a life that is consumed with not only a jealous God, but a consuming God. It's a vibrant life. It's a life that's not here today and, and maybe not so much tomorrow. It is his life. Does Christ know of ebbing? No, he does not know of ebbing. We know of ebbing. And ebbing is a stream that, that something is broken in the flow and it kind of ebbs over here. God knows nothing of that. God has seasons of growth, yes, but He is always active in our life. Even the times when we think He's silent, He's active. He is ceaselessly active in our life because He loves us. Wow. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, we've all, all have spent so much time throughout the years looking at 1 Peter 5, that classic verse about what our adversary is really doing in our life. You know, Satan is doing something in your life. He's chasing you. He wants to devour you. He can't get your soul if you're Christ because you're his. Greater is he who is in you than he is in the world and so forth. But what he can do to your life is he can, he can play a lot of havoc in your life. And there's a lot of, of, of Christians that are constantly defeated in their life because they don't understand this. And yet, we also read in 1 Peter 9, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 9. I'll just read it for you. It says, resist him. Talking about the lion. He's a roaring lion. He walks around seeking whom he may devour. That's strong language. But he says, resist him, I'm in 1 Peter 5, 9 now, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by brotherhood in the world. In other words, Satan is after God's bride. He's after the bride of Christ. And by the way, just a side note, uh, and not so much now, I don't think, that I see mainly in the last 10 years or so, but before, one of, do you know why that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and all the cults went door to door during the day? Think about it. 
Because it was common years ago that the men would be off working and the women would be at home. That's the way Satan works. But we're to resist him because the same sufferings are going on in the world of, of, of the bride of Christ. But he says in verse 10, but many... But may the God of all grace who call us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's a promise. Are you going to hang in there? Or are you going to uh, tend to, this is too hard. I've got people actually asking me, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. You know? Really? You didn't sign up for what? Obviously you don't know God. You know, a little hardship comes, a little a little trial comes, and and they're gone. Because, brethren, I believe it's what I am witnessed, and what I believe the scriptures call for. They have not submit themselves to God. There is no halfway with God. Jesus put it this way: one who sets his hand to the plow. Hey, he wants to go there. He knows he needs to get a furrow going. He knows he needs the vegetables to start growing. He knows, he knows, he knows. But it gets to a point where it gets a little bit harder, or it gets a little bit daunting, or what have you. He looks back. He looks back. We can see it all through the scriptures. They just, the Hebrews have just come out of an oppression for 400 years. An oppression. In fact, it got worse and worse and worse as time went on. God miraculously told them to do something, put blood on the doorpost. They did it. God miraculously delivered them to the Red Sea. They actually saw their oppressors being drowned in the very sea that they were delivered through. And yet, it wasn't very long in the wilderness by they said, you know, if we were only back in Egypt, Man, the leeks and the garlics and all the, oh, wow, you know. Submit to God. There's a time in a Christian's life when God brings them to the point of, of submitting, and when they cross that threshold, there is no turning back. There is no looking back. Then they are fit, they are clad, they are empowered to resist the devil. Boy, temptations come everywhere. Temptation isn't a sin. It's what you do with it. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted all through his life. Most people don't realize the most severe temptation, not for Christ, but for mankind, when he was on the cross, Satan did his last plea, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. You just come down from the cross. If you're nailed up there, you're beat beyond recognition, you're weak, loss of blood, you're nailed, nobody's ever come down. But you know what? If you come down and we see that, wow, we're just we're really going to believe that. No, they wouldn't. They would probably kill him on the ground. Satan was trying to defeat the Son of God by, by stopping his completed redemption on the cross. It wasn't until Jesus said, it is finished that the temple curtain split from top to bottom. He died that God's righteous justice and his law was satisfied. He slew Christ instead of you. The Satan suffered a tremendous defeat. Wait a minute. That was prophesied way back in Genesis 3.15. So the character of God is such that when we are born of him, we realize that he is jealously in us. He yearns with us. Why do we have the Holy Spirit within us? We have the Holy Spirit in us that we could be conformed to the image of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that we'd have the power to walk the Christian life. We have the Holy Spirit that the risen Christ would live his life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says we have the Holy Spirit that we mortify or put to death the deeds of flesh by the Spirit. We could go on. There's a reason why God inhabits us jealously because he loves us and he's a consuming fire and he wants to consume you. My question is today, has he? 
Because if he consumed you, you can submit to him and resist the devil. And there's a promise here. Look at verse 7 closely. We can do the submitting to God. We can resist the devil. And there's a benefit. There's a promise here. He will flee from us. But as we see of Jesus, the Bible says that until an opportune time. Oh, believe me. When you have a victory in Christ and he flees from you, he's not done with you. He waits for that weak moment. You know, there's a there's a in scripture, you remember when Saul was in the heat of the battle? The King Saul? I love it. We don't have time to go there, but but you see it where he's in the battle with Jonathan, his son. David loved Jonathan, and they're in, and then in the battle, they're fighting the Philistines and, and, and some of the other, other people in that surrounding area, I feel. And the battle's hot, and guess what? Saul gets shot, and he gets shot between the, the pressings of his armor. That's what Satan tries to do. He's going to get you when you have your armor off. He's going to get you when you're relaxing. But he is going to get you if you've not fully committed your life to God. You cannot resist him. You will fall for his temptations. We see it all the time. Lust, I don't have time to talk about the people, the pastors and everything that fall through pornography. That fall through lust. Well, my, you know, there's a lady in my church. If, if I wanted to know everybody, I've had an affair with for quite some time. But she's more spiritual. She understands and she follows God fully. And I, I love it. More, more pastors than not that have fallen through uh, having affairs. You know what their number one thing was? The spirituality of the one they're having the affair with. Check it out. There are all kinds of, of things. Really? No, that's false. That's what Satan's saying, because if she was spiritual, she would have nothing to do having an affair with her spiritual leader, let alone anybody else. Let's get down to business here. Let's submit to God so that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. He, You know, you could talk about God all day, but you, you don the name of Jesus Christ, and that is powerful. All the enemies... Of Christ fell backwards. All of them fell. You know? We talked about Legion. Remember? What's your name? My name is Legion, for there are many. Blam! He was on the ground before Christ begged you, do not torment us before the time. Christ is powerful. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Wow. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He gives grace, verse 6, he says, to the humble. So after you submit to God, you resist the devil, you flee from him. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded I really wish that there were some there were some people that were listening today. I pray God that would that say that, well, you know what? I've been I've been I have this grace thing going on and and you know, God loves me and I'm just that's it. You know what? God loves you, but God requires of you that you would be faithful to him. And you would draw near to him. And that doesn't mean that if you don't, you know, God's not going to kick you to hell for your unfaithfulness. God remains faithful. But God is, is constantly yearning us. Look at verse 8 closely again. Draw near to God. It is all through the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2, and I don't have time to read it, but God is telling the people, you know what? You draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. It's, it's, it, it is a, uh, an intimacy that we cannot afford to take lightly. But he says that if you're going to draw near to God, God's going to draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts. Excuse me. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I'm getting ahead of myself. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. To understand this verse better, listen to this out of Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
God says through Jeremiah 29, he says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, there's, there's Christians out there that I believe are genuinely saved, and yet they, they wonder why they don't have that closeness that the Bible talks about. God yearns to be close with us. He yearns to purify us with His Word. The beginning of this of this book, we read in chapter one, verse eight. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a man that doesn't ask in faith, but he kind of doubts. He hasn't made that full commitment. You know, he he kind of runs to and fro. He kind of asks, and he, you know, he kind of well, Lord, you know, this and that. And he's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. That's what happens when we don't submit ourselves entirely to God. When something is amiss from our 100% uh, submission to God, that means that the other percentage is ours. That means we're holding on to something. That means we're not taking God completely at His word, because if we did, it would change our lives. God is in every situation in life. Think about it. You cannot get around it. You cannot deal with your wife, your kids, your business, your ministry. Everything that God does not want to have control of all of it. Of all of it. He says, draw near to me. Paul said the same thing to Timothy. I love it. You know, watch your life closely. The same is with your doctrine. We're called to watch our life closely and not to make adjustments how we think it should be adjusted. If there are adjustments to make, we make an adjustment with the Word of God. If we're askew, we're askew because of us, never because of God's Word. Are you in the middle of the road? Well, you know, God just hasn't dealt with me in that hogwash. That is the devilish lie, especially if you have been a Christian for any length of time, Jesus Christ died for our sin, past, present, and future. If you are sinning and you know it, God has dealt with you. That's why you know it. Jesus said that the Spirit will convict the world of sin. If you know it's wrong, God's dealt with you on that. And shame on you if you persist, you rebellious person. Because God will be that emphatic because He loves you. You don't know what that rebellion's doing to you. It's tearing you apart. It's causing havoc in your life. You think you're drinking that clear, cool glass of water when there's mud and particles and worms and everything in it that goes on persistently will infest your life. And you will be, uh, well, I think there's a sins that lead the point where God takes the life away. That's how serious it gets. We need to watch our life closely. Because when we do, wow, the love of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, hey, why do you look at your brother's eye and say, hey, let me take the splinter out of your eye and you don't even see the beam in your own? You know? Well, you know, I have liberty to do that. I'm, I'm a pastor. No, I don't have liberty to do that. I have liberty in Jesus Christ. It's, you know, Jesus said the, to the people that came back in John 4, uh, Master, you know, first they, they weren't going to ask him, why are you talking with a woman, especially a Samaritan woman? But they sent him out to find food. They came back, and what did he tell them? He said, I have food that you know nothing about. It was way beyond what we think or can do. Wow. I wanted so much to get to, uh, yeah, I agree. I think if we, uh, 
In verse 9, if we know the meaning of what the Bible talks about lamenting and mourning and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. You know, the joy of the world and the, the wonders of the world are what killed the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin of the world, the pride, the arrogancy of man uh, is the reason why Jesus came. And the, the reason why that the world is in such enmity with God is because it is going on with its sinful pleasure. It's affordable lifestyle. It's me first. After all, you deserve it. How many times have we heard that in commercials? And by the way, I'll end with this verse. How many times have we heard on commercials or anything else? You deserve it. I heard the other day they're talking about a, some carpenter or something on the, uh, on the radio. After all, you deserve it. We're programmed to say, after all, you deserve it. Come on, you deserve it. You've worked hard. You, you know, it's, the, it's the, the prideful assertion of this world owes me. This world? This world that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and would do it again in a heartbeat? Wow. So we see these things and we, we, we weep. Let your laughter be turned to joy. You know, laughter is good medicine, but we weep now. We'll laugh later. We sow with tears now. We will reap with joy later. We have work to do. And yet, on the inside, we understand that the outer coating is full of good works and everything else. But on the inside, we're seething with the joy of the Lord, that inner gladness that comes out. How can that be? Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ that's living his life through us. It's the being born again. It's the separated. God has put us out of death and into life. We see what, what uh, Moses was saying about the wilderness. God brought us out of Egypt and he brought us into his life. He brought us out to bring us in. It's a concept all the way through the Bible. So the fallacy of of being a part of this world and being so enamored in the things of this world and yet being a Christian, we don't understand that to be friends with this world is to be enmity with God. I can't wait till next week and beyond. We, we, there's so much that we read about in James and no wonder when we get to chapter 4, excuse me, to verse 14, talking about life. Life. Wow. Life is so short. But that, that is a concept all through the Bible, and we'll be bringing that up. But because it's short, what should we be doing? Because it's short. Do we have time to mess around? Do we have time to play in the middle of the road? Like I've said before, and I'll end with this, um, and I think it, I think it's it's exactly a, a wonderful thing to contemplate, and we need to be serious with that and ask each one of us if God gave us a week to live, would your week be any different than if you didn't know that? Or in other words, if if God if tomorrow your life was to be over, would today be lived differently in purpose and dedication in seriousness? Because if it would be different, then something's wrong because the Bible says that you don't know when your life is going to be up. The Bible says your life's like a vapor. The Bible says that you don't know when your time is up. Therefore, we should always be sitting at the Master's feet. We should always be rejoicing before Him. We should always be near the door so when He knocks, we can immediately open. Not being consumed and not being uh, so drugged down by the things of the world, but being so in tune with Christ and walking with Him and submitting everything. You know what, folks? If we submit everything to Him, we have nothing to bog us down. If I entrust everything to him, then I am entrusted to my faithful creator. When he comes, he will come for me and get me. When I have a crisis, he will be there to minister to me and help me. 
When I have a death in my family, he will be there to comfort me and console me. When I go to minister in my ministry, he will be there to empower me. Can't you see that until we submit ourselves to, to Christ, we are frustrated at best. You need to decide, I need to decide, are we frustrated Christians? Are we fulfilled? Are we? Are, do we have joy? Or is it, we say, you know what, I can't think of the last time I had joy. In fact, I, just, I can't think of the last time I had joy. Then, then the Lord is speaking to you and, and saying, submit to me. Lay down everything you have and submit to me. He wants to be your all in all. Otherwise, as Christians that have been Christians for some length of time, have no business calling him Lord. He is Lord of all. We give allegiance to kings of other areas, other times, at the termination of death, when we consider us treason, when we go against them. How much more the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is Lord. He is God. He deserves everything. And that includes our thought life. Father, I just thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for the joy that we have that when we realize that you are consuming God and you want to consume us. And you want to take away all of our fears. And you want to give us confidence and joy in the midst of suffering. I pray that we would take these things and then cry out as Paul did that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection. So when I come into the fellowship of the sufferings, that's nothing. What are the sufferings of this life but momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory? Father, I pray that those of us that have not made that total commitment, that submission, that have no other rivalries, no other ambitions, no other envies, no other lusts, but that they would commit their life to Christ that they would do it now and that we would be raised up as witnesses unto you in these last days because you're coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming and it's very soon, it's very imminent. We don't want to be people that are ashamed at his coming. We want to be confident people that receive him, that as he comes in the air, we are ready and are full of joy or as Peter says, glory and joy inexpressible. It's your coming. And Lord, you speak about it twice in this epistle. We'll be getting into it. I pray that we keep that all in the forefront of our mind. That we would not put our hands to the plow and look back. But that we would be confident and joyous Christians. And Father, I, I pray in the only one that is able to change our hearts. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and dwelling in the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would solidify the word to us today, that we would go out with that inner gladness, even in the midst of our conflicts and sufferings. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.